title of today's message is Children of the Father. Children of the Father. And we're going to read Matthew chapter 5, uh, verses 43 through 48. And then I also want to read um, from Luke chapter 6, uh, verse 27. So feel free to flip over there as well. But I'll begin to read Matthew 5, beginning in verse 43. You've heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies, pray for those who persecute you, so that you may be sons of your Father who's in heaven. For he makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good, and sends rain on the just and the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? You, therefore, must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. And then from a similar passage in Luke chapter 6, we read in verse 27, I say to you who hear, love your enemies, do good to those who hate you, Bless those who curse you and pray for those who abuse you. To the one who strikes you on the cheek, offer the other also. From the one who takes away your cloak, do not withhold your tunic either. A little bit further down in that chapter, verse number 35. But love your enemies and do good and lend. Expect nothing in return and your reward will be great and you will be sons of the Most High for he is kind to the ungrateful and the evil. Be merciful even as your Father is merciful. As we come now to the last sort of example that Jesus gives of true uh, righteousness, we've seen quite a bit, haven't we? It started off with Jesus' clarifying statement uh, that he has not come to abolish the law, but he's come to fulfill it. And so far in each one of these examples, we've seen how Jesus' righteous ways do just that. Jesus doesn't spit upon the law. He doesn't denounce righteousness. He doesn't belittle it or change it. He he really proves it. And Jesus proves righteousness in both his life and his living and also in his word. He fulfills the extent and the intent of of the Old Testament in his coming. And he also shows us by his living what true righteousness looks like practically. And we've seen some of that in these examples. So far, it has looked like reconciliation rather than anger. It has looked like self-control rather than lust and adultery. It has looked like faithfulness rather than needless divorce and untruthfulness. It has looked like meekness rather than retaliation and living by an eye for an eye mentality. All of Jesus' examples have both uncovered the true depth of the law in these areas, while also uncovering the shallowness of the common interpretations, or at least the common applications of the law. In all of these ways, in any one of these categories, men had found means of smoothing over God's word in order to be able to say, I'm righteous in this category. But in every example... Jesus has shown how a false pretense of righteousness is simply another form of unrighteousness. Now, in the last example concerning an eye for an eye, we really see the heart 
of Christ. And we see a glimpse of what kind of a man he would prove to be in his living. In his humility, his meekness, his generosity, and in his faith, Jesus showed us how to live a life that wasn't controlled by an eye-for-an-eye thinking. But also, I see those words in the last section where Jesus speaks of how to live like that as a precursor and a, a foreshadowing, really. In those specific ways, in, in not acting evil for evil, in not giving an eye for an eye, in humility, in meekness, in those specific ways, Jesus proved his righteousness later in his life and in his death. When we think of the crucifixion narrative of Jesus, including his trial and the surrounding events. Jesus did not retaliate in any way, but as we read, 1 Peter 2.23 says, he trusted himself to the one who judges justly. So he is our example, but in being an example, he became more than an example. Truly, Jesus is our example of righteousness, but more than that, he, he is our righteousness. After all, he came with a purpose. Jesus' living was really always moving toward his dying, and his dying was always with an eye to his living again. The ultimate sacrifice, the ultimate payment, the ultimate victory. And as we move to the final example in Matthew 5, the fullness of Christ's example and the picture of his passion shines through again. For in this example, we see the example of love. The example of love. One author I read this week put it this way, this passage, that it is a concentrated expression of the Christian ethic. That is, it's the practical aspect of what it means to follow Christ. It's wrapped up in this short passage. It is love, but not simply as man loves, rather as God loves. Now, we read of God's love earlier in the service in our call to worship. In Psalm 36, we read, Your steadfast love, O Lord, extends to the heavens, your faithfulness to the clouds. Your righteousness is like the mountains of God. Your judgments are like the great deep. Man and beast you save, O Lord. How precious is your steadfast love, O God. The children of mankind take refuge in the shadow of your wings. Truly this morning we could say that there is no love apart from God. Love is part of God's very essence. It is part of who he is. In the book of 1 John, the apostle put it this way. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God, because God is love. That passage is sort of bracketed with two statements. Love is from God, and God is love. Now, that is not simply beautiful and poetic. It's also theologically deep because it's true. Now, think of it this way. If there is any one of God's attributes that we could say is universally admired, it would probably be that of love. Now, when we come down to brass tacks, we may have to define love 
differently than many in the world, but you'd be hard-pressed to find a person who would not admit that love is a good thing. Now, another thing about love as part of God's essence, or we could say it's one of his attributes, is this. There are attributes of God that, that we call incommunicable. That means we don't really share in them. For instance, God is all-knowing. He's all-powerful. He's omnipresent. We don't share in those attributes. We're very limited in those sense. But there are attributes of God that we call communicable attributes, and that means that we can share in them in some sense. For instance, God is faithful, and he calls us to be faithful. God is holy, and we are called also to be holy. And God is love, and we are called to love. And for Jesus' audience, there wouldn't have been any doubt about the fact that we are called to love, but the question and the qualifying nature of Jesus' teaching here in the end of this chapter is this. Who are we called to love? That is, if I have to admit, a challenging question, a convicting question, and a pointed question. It's a question that we must ask along with every other person who reads this passage, but it is a question that finds a clear answer both in Jesus' words and in his life and death, which would follow. So here's the big idea for this morning. Love comes from God and shows that we are God's children. God is the goal of love and all righteousness. And as we look through this passage, we'll see four things again. And the first one we'll look at is the old unwritten rule. The old unwritten rule. Read again verse 43. You've heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. Pause there. Like in the other examples that Jesus has given, he gets the hearer's attention again with, with you have heard it said. Now, in some of the examples, Jesus simply quotes a written law. In some of the examples, he quotes a common saying that was at least thought to be deduced from the law. Here, Jesus quotes what seems to be a mixture of the two. You have heard it said that you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. So there's two sides to this common saying. The first part of Jesus' quotation comes from the Old Testament, and it's found in Leviticus chapter 19. Leviticus 19, verse says, You shall not take vengeance or bear grudge against the sons of your own people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. To love your neighbor was a clear command. It's nothing new with Jesus. It's a command that makes sense, after all. It's the essence of the golden rule. Do, others, or do unto others as you would have them do to you. We read that in Luke chapter 6 a few minutes ago. So when it comes to love your neighbor, there's really no problem there. The sticky portion becomes the second half of the quotation. You have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. Now, Jesus seems to be addressing the common teachings or at least the common understanding of the law. So if that was a common belief, we have to ask the question, where did it come from? And I'll say 
For starters, to be sure, there's no direct commandment in the scriptures to hate your enemy. We have examples of people hating their enemy. We have examples of, of God's righteous hatred exhibited toward an enemy. We have examples of distinguishing between Israel and their enemies, but we do not have a commandment like this that tells us to hate our enemies. So just with that, we already can say that love your neighbor and hate your enemy are on at least different planes. One is a clear command of God, and the other is not. Now, it's possible that that idea or that inference uh, comes from passages in the Old Testament like Deuteronomy 23. Just share one verse with you. Deuteronomy 23, 3 says, no Ammonite or Moabite may enter the assembly of the Lord, even to the 10th generation. None of them may enter the assembly of the Lord forever. Now, you'll have to read the context for yourself later on. But there in Deuteronomy 23, there was a specific statement about a specific dealing with the Ammonites and the Moabites because of their belligerent past with Israel. And the account that it's referring to can be found in Numbers 22 through 24. So this is an example of certain distinguishing, or distinct distinctions that have been made in Israel's history to protect the holiness of Israel as a covenant nation, a nation which was called out to worship and serve the one true God. Yet even in these distinctions, there was no command to hate your enemy on par with to love your neighbor. It seems the idea of hating your enemy was the unwritten rule that is kind of born out of distinguishing between Israel and the rest of the world, distinguishing between God's righteous nation and the unrighteous rest. Now, in a ceremonial sense, there was a distinction, absolutely. Yet still, there was not a command to hate one's enemy. But as people, we can understand how it would become the norm. I would suggest that this passage goes hand in hand with last week's because hating your enemy is simply an eye for an eye borne out. It's an eye for an eye as a lifestyle. Hating your enemy is an eye for an eye as a lens through which you view people. It goes beyond... Well, that person harmed me, so I will harm them, to an even deeper level. It really goes to someone from that group of people harmed someone from my group of people, so I will retaliate by hating their people. Now, this was alive and well in Jesus' day as it is today. And uh, we can't go here for the sake of time, but Jesus addressed the similar idea in his parable of the Good Samaritan, didn't he? The Samaritans, after all, were the racial enemies, quote-unquote, of Israel. And the hatred between those two groups, it went both ways. They both thought they were completely justified in their hatred of one another. And specifically, the Jewish people thought they were justified in their hatred of the unclean, mixed lineage of the Samaritans. But what about us? We've seen this borne out in our day as well. 
In the days immediately following, and even today, uh, since the attacks of 9-11, for many there has been a clear and distinct hate-your-enemy attitude toward all people from the Middle Eastern culture. We've seen a hate-your-enemy attitude borne out in things like slavery. And sometimes it goes both directions. We see personal applications of hate-your-enemy when a family turns their back on another family because of a dispute or disagreement between one or two people. We're very familiar with this idea of loving your neighbor but hating your enemy. And we typically have no problem with the command to love your neighbor as long as we can hold on to hate your enemy and as long as we can excuse ourselves from loving anybody, as long as we can sort of wrestle them into the category of being our enemy. A difference in political affiliation? Oh, they're my enemy. A difference in opinions on coronavirus and vaccines and all this? Oh, they're my enemy. A difference in skin color or culture? Oh, easy, they're my enemy. A difference in upbringing or in personality even? Sure, we may not say the words, but in our mind, yeah, they're my enemy. But the problem is, hate your enemy is not so much a command as it is a convenience. It's not really even implied in Scripture as a command. Love your neighbor and hate your enemy was simply the way it was, or perhaps the way it is. But in Christ's kingdom, it is not the way it ought to be. So we find Jesus' response, and we see the true radical rule. And again, we say radical not because it's new, but because in common understanding, it was a shift. It was a shift. You have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Again, uh, the quote is extended in Luke chapter 6. Love your enemies, do good to those who hate you, bless those who curse you, and pray for those who abuse you. When Jesus says, love your enemies, pray for those who persecute you, he was was directly addressing the tendency of culture to live in a rut or in a pattern. Think of it this way. It's like when you're driving down the interstate in any amount of traffic, the easiest thing to do is to do what? Go with the flow of traffic. Uh, Lizzie and I were in Atlanta a few weeks ago, as most of you know, for a conference, and and we drove there. And uh, let me just say, when you're from Vermont or any small place, um, any amount of city traffic is frustrating. Um, Actually, even in these past nine, ten months of moving to Ira from Rutland, I now find Rutland traffic very frustrating. But there's not much traffic, and I've driven quite a bit around the country, there's not much traffic like Atlanta, Georgia traffic. It seems that every bit of the Deep South converges on Atlanta all at once. And there's about a three or four mile stretch of interstate right in the heart of downtown where where three or four highways all come together to form one of the largest amalgamations of roadway that I've ever seen. Eight nine, ten lanes of traffic all going one direction. And every lane at certain times of the day packed with cars just a few feet from one another. If you get in the middle of that thing and you have to be over here or over there, 
good luck. You're going to drive about 10 miles and turn around. In that kind of traffic, it's hard to do anything but go with the flow. And that's a bit how love your neighbor and hate your enemy plays itself out. If you find yourself in a cultural moment or in a sphere of people or even just in culture in general who are all acting this way, love your neighbor and hate your enemy, you find that it's easiest to fall in line in that regard, whoever the supposed enemy might be. But Jesus says, love your enemy. Pray for those who persecute you. That is a fish swimming upstream. It's a bird flying into a, a headwind, a bicycle pedaling uphill, a, a, a hand plane going against the woodworking grain. It's like patting a cat the wrong direction. It sticks out. It's noticeable. It's difficult. It's not natural, but it's righteous. And Jesus didn't have to come up with that. There are examples of love and grace to our enemies all throughout the Old Testament. Here, here are just a few. Exodus 23, verses 4 and 5. If you meet your enemy's ox or his donkey going astray, you shall bring it back to him. If you see the donkey of one who hates you lying down under its burden, you shall re refrain from leaving with him with it. You shall rescue it with him. Another one in the book of Proverbs 25, 21. If your enemy is hungry, give him bread to eat. And if he is thirsty, give him water to drink. We, we saw Paul quote that in Romans. Another one, Levit Leviticus 19 again, this time verse 34. You shall treat the stranger who sojourns with you as the native among you, and you shall love him as yourself. For you were strangers in the land of Egypt. I am the Lord your God. So in fact, it is not love your neighbor and hate your enemy. It is love your neighbor and love your enemy. That takes away a lot of the convenience, doesn't it? Because with the other way of thinking, we have the option, at least mentally, of assigning somebody that category of enemy in order to avoid loving them when they're difficult to love, when we struggle to love them, and we, we give ourselves and out. We, we let ourselves off the hook because we say, well, they're my enemy. We, we have irreconcilable differences. But now the, the categories are muddled. We can't consider ourselves righteous if we truly hate our enemies in this regard. Think about this in comparison to last week's example. Jesus taught us not to retaliate, but to turn the other cheek. If, if non-retaliation is the negative example or the negative command, then to love your enemy is the positive example or the positive command. Not only are we to not retaliate, we are to love. Now, I'm a human. I, I know in your mind you're still thinking about that, that question. Well, what about somebody who's really my enemy? Or maybe you're thinking about the question still, well, who is my enemy? There must be somebody that, that I can put in this category. But as we think along these lines, the distinction starts to fade away. When we begin to love with this sort of love, it becomes harder and harder to consider somebody truly our enemy. 
And we find ourselves looking at them as God's image bearers who are in need of the same love and grace that we have ourselves received from God. Now in this passage, as one example, Jesus specifically mentions those who persecute you. And this brings us full circle back to the Beatitudes, doesn't it? Where we read in Matthew 5, 10, and 11, Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. We read there that we are blessed when others revile us and persecute us for righteousness' sake. And out of that blessedness, we are to love those who are our enemies in that regard. And Jesus also gives us an example of how we might do that. If someone is dead set against us, if they're truly our enemy by their own declaration, if they truly despise us and hate us and detest us and perhaps even try to harm us, then we may not be able to get close enough to love them. Love, after all, is not a feeling or an emotion. It's, it's a verb. It's an action. So how do you love someone when you can't get close enough to speak a good word or offer forgiveness or to lend a helping hand? Jesus says you pray for them. Now, the word here for pray is the general word for pray. It could be intercession, supplication, crying out for help, whatever it is, it's going to the Lord on their behalf. And we've already said that it becomes hard to consider someone an enemy when we love them. Well, it also becomes very difficult to continue hating someone when we regularly pray for them. Is someone estranged from you and reconciliation seems impossible or at least improbable? Pray for them. Go lovingly and boldly to God's throne on behalf of them. Do you struggle to get along with someone because you have a difference of opinion in politics or life or whatever it might be? Pray for them. Perhaps through prayer, God will make a way for a path to be paved in the mire of disagreement. Do you have an employer who you feel is incompetent or unjust, love them and pray for them. Perhaps God will use you to shed some light where there is darkness. Do you have a government which you feel is corrupt and unjust? Pray for them as we're commanded in Scripture and love them as people. Pray for righteousness and justice, but do not pray spitefully or in hatred. Pray for them. And love them. This is Christ's teaching, and it's also his example. And we move thirdly to the example. Read verse 45 and following with me. So that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven, for he who makes, uh, he makes the sun rise on the evil and on the good, and sends rain on the just and the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? All of this love your enemies 
is more than just good advice. It goes back again to the character of God. Love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. Now that's an amazing statement and it's worded interestingly. Note, now I know these are minor details, but note the words. So that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. Jesus is speaking here to those who in some sense, can already call God their father. That's not an automatic. We're we're not born into the world as automatic children of God. We become children of God through forgiveness, through grace, through faith. We read of that kind of sonship in in John chapter 1, where John says, to all who did receive him, that is Jesus Christ, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Now, I'm getting ahead of the text here, I know. That's bad practice. But it's important to note that because Jesus here isn't telling us how to obtain God as our Father. He's telling us how to look like his sons. A son of the Father is a mark. It's a characteristic. It's a a mark of distinction. We often say, well, that boy is a spitting image of his father. Now, fortunately for my children, they have inherited their mother's good looks. That will bid them well in life. But in other ways, maybe unfortunately for them, they have inherited my genes as well. And from the youngest age, we pick up on how children are like their parents, whether it's in mannerisms or phrases or or facial expressions. We tend to mimic and become like those who raise us. That's Jesus' idea here. And for that, we also see another quote from the Apostle John in 1 John 3. See what kind of love the Father has given to us that we should be called children of God. And so we are. The reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know Him. Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared. But listen, we know that when He appears, we shall be like Him, because we shall see Him as He is. And everyone who thus hopes in Him purifies himself as He is pure. You see there in John, 1 John 3, we are children of God. But do you see the kind of love that God has bestowed on us, has given to us, that flows in us and through us, that we should be called the children of God? And do you see where it's going? When he appears, we're going to be like him. We're going to be like our father. Now, I have a hard time believing and thinking that John didn't get that concept directly from Jesus, for we read essentially the same idea there. God has given us his love, and that love makes us and marks us off as his children. We are God's children, yes, by grace, through faith and forgiveness, but we are called to look like his children. As John said at the end of that passage, everyone who has this hope, purifies himself as God is pure. So yes, we are God's children. And we look like his children when we love in the way that he loves. And how does God love? Well, the text back in Matthew 5 tells us. He makes the sun to rise on the evil and the good 
He sends rain on the just and the unjust. That's what we often call common grace. Common grace is that good and benevolent love which God provides life's good experiences to everybody without regard even to their faith. We see it in the text as rain and sunshine. In other words, my neighbor, whether they're believer or unbeliever, got the same uh, natural elements in their garden as we did in our garden. We see it in things like marriage, childbearing, humor, natural beauty, enjoyment, relationships of all kinds. All of these are, are good and wonderful gifts that the world can enjoy. Now, to some extent, there may be more of an understanding and more of a realization and more of a joy to God's children because they know the author of those gifts. But it comes down to this. We love our enemies because God loves his enemies. Think of Romans chapter 5. While we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person. Perhaps for a good person, one would dare to die. But God, and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. Do you see it there? This kind of God's love is chiefly and clearly displayed in the cross of Jesus, an act that not only did not retaliate against his enemies, went far beyond that to offer forgiveness and reconciliation to his enemies. One simple way that we can speak of the gospel is this. God loves his enemies. And when we love our enemies, in a small but true sense, we mimic and display the gospel. Specifically, the love that Jesus speaks of here is agape love. You've heard that term. It's not merely brotherly love, and it's, it's not marital love. It's, it's transcendent and unconditional love. It's, it's a love that's unwavering, love that is without shifting. It's, it's the unfailing love that's often spoken of in the Old Testament as God's faithful love. That is who God is. And that is the kind of love that we are given and also called to give out. Now, earlier, we read from Deuteronomy 23, where God's people were told not to allow the Ammonites or the Moabites into their assembly. But yet, who was Ruth but a Moabitess? And what favor did she find in God's eyes but to be in the very lineage of our Lord? Do you see how even in that, God loves his enemies? And I would suggest that one reason that we struggle to love our enemies is that we often neglect the fact and have a hard time considering that we ourselves were God's enemies. 
But when we see ourselves as enemies who have found love and grace from our good Father, we can then extend and give out that love, the love that has been given to us, the love that shows that we are sons and daughters of our Father. Verse 46, so that, for if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than the others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? Love to those who love you is natural, but it's not rewarded or blessed like love to your enemies. Greeting only our brothers is natural, but it doesn't display the kindness and righteousness of God in the true sense, like loving our enemy does. We love and pray for our enemies, whoever that might be, or whoever it might not be, because God, our Father, loves his enemies. Finally, we see the goal. As we come to the end of Matthew 5, we come to a verse that some have considered discouraging, even dreadful. And when you read it in one sense, it can be discouraging and dreadful. We read, you therefore must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. And we take that on its face and we say, can't do it. It's impossible. No way. I'm out. No chance. But think of all we've seen in Matthew 5. In Matthew 5, we see a transformation. Consider where we started. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Do you see the beauty then in the totality of this passage? We come to God. And we find ourselves as sons and daughters of the king, displaying his righteousness. You could put it this way. A walk with Christ is a walk that is going somewhere. The word perfect here, we probably think of it in a mathematical sense. But it should be understood in a sense of growth, the sense of maturity, wholeness, or soundness. That is, as children, the goal is that we will mature and grow up into the image of our holy, merciful and righteous Father. Now this is really no different than what the body of Christ is called to in Ephesians 4. He gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, teachers, to equip the saints for the work of the ministry, for the building up of the body of Christ, until we all attain to the unity of faith, the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children, tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body joined and held together by every joint with which it is supplied, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. The goal is maturity, maturity that comes through growth. The goal is that we will grow up in righteousness to look 
like Christ, who looks like our Father. Matthew 5.48 is a command, but it's as much a promise as a command. We already saw the transformative and gracious power of God in the Beatitudes. God's work in us is going somewhere. So when you read Matthew 5.48, and he says, you must be perfect as your Father is perfect. And you ask, is that true? We have to say, yes, it's true. There's no way around it. But Jesus didn't give those words as a discouragement, but rather as an encouragement that all of this, from the Beatitudes to the examples of righteousness, all of it is a reality and a possibility. We see the goal as maturity, perfection akin to our Father's maturity, and we are driven back to what Christ has already told us. And again, we are poor in spirit. We mourn in our unrighteousness. We, we hunger and thirst for the righteousness that we don't have. And in these things, we are blessed. And the promise is that we will be filled. Not a skin-deep righteousness like the scribes and Pharisees, but a real and true, a transformative righteousness that comes to us through Christ. And as we walk the road of discipleship, as we grow up, may we walk by faith. I'll leave you with this encouragement from Philippians 1.6, where Paul says, I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. Next week, we're going to jump into Matthew 6, where the first thing is a warning against having the kind of righteousness that is just to be on display for other people's approval. So that's not what we're after. We're after a true righteousness, more than skin deep. May we live as children of God, and may we pray earnestly each day for the grace and strength to display his love and righteousness, to display the gospel, the grace of God in our living, as Christ did. Lord, we read these words. We see them true yet convicting. We see them as difficult but powerful. We see them as a roadmap but also a promise. Lord, you have begun this work in us. We are poor in spirit. We mourn. We hunger and thirst. We are meek and lowly, yet in you we are blessed. We see your work in our lives transforming us, changing us from one degree of glory to the next. We see your work in our lives building us into the image of your Son, Jesus Christ. Lord, and we see that the goal, the ultimate, holy as you are holy, that we would be perfect as you are perfect, that we would be mature as you are whole and mature, God. And we long for that. We see that it is not yet true but we long for it. We desire this true righteousness. This true righteousness that Jesus Christ displayed and paid for. We have been forgiven and redeemed and by his grace. And may we display through our love, which is really your love, 
And through our righteousness, which is really your righteousness, may we display you to a world who is without you. May we love our neighbor. May we love our enemies. May we love you. You are love, O Lord. Jesus Christ's name we pray. Amen.